Director. Thanks, Martin. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is a requirement of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the Israelites to bring you a red heifer without defect or blemish, and that has never been under a yoke. Give it to Eliza. The I wrong one. Oh, I beg your pardon. Chapter 21. 21, I beg your pardon. Verses 1 to 9. Thanks, mate. Thank you. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atherim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy these cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They had travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord said, sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look, it, look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone was... When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Trevor. Now, what's such a reading got to do with us this morning? Well, we might find out in a moment, but I'm going to pray first. Father, we thank you for scripture that we can read and for minds that we have to understand it. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will apply your word to each of our hearts that we see, see the relevance and put into practice today what we might learn. Well, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The events that uh, Trevor read for us this morning, they, they occurred at the end of Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. And during that time, God had been faithful, very faithful, to walk with Israel, to feed them, manna every day, to lead them from place to place, to protect them from their enemies. God had been so faithful to his people. But the Israelites, they'd grown sick and tired of the whole beast, the whole thing. They said, no, that's it. You know, we've had enough. They're tired of wandering through, through the wilderness. They're tired of God's plans. They're tired of manna. They're tired of their leader, Moses. They're just sick and tired of everything. And in this text, we are told they traveled from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So the Israelites, they're, they're forced to go this way around because the Edomites, they weren't going to grant Israel permission to cross their land. And they, were forced, they forced Israel to walk through a terribly harsh desert area. And there were mountains and it was rough and it was desolate. And the people, they just didn't like it. In verse 4, it says the people grew impatient on the way. You can imagine what's going on here as these people are wandering around. Their tempers are getting short. They're a bit frustrated. They're out of patience. And this whole process of, of trying to get to the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. And their frustration over the path well, over the, 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 that they're walking causes them to start complaining. 
And they voiced several complaints in verse 5. They complained that God and Moses brought them out of Egypt, just have them die in the wilderness. They're complaining about the lack of food. They're complaining about the lack of water. And they're complaining about the manna that God had been sending them every single day. Now, manna, if you might remember, it was this miracle food. It fell on their camp at night time. It was plentiful. It was free. It was tasty. It was nutritious. It was an incredibly gracious gift from God. A mathematician has calculated that it would take about 240 40-foot containers full of manna every day to feed the nation of Israel. That's an awful lot of food, isn't it? Every day God provides it. I think it illustrates the grace and the power and the generosity of Almighty God. But despite God's grace in delivering them from Egypt, despite His generosity in feeding them, despite His guidance in leading them, they begin to murmur and to complain. They complain about the leader God's given them, and they also lodge their complaint against God. In response to their complaints, God sends judgment on Israel. He sends venomous snakes. But along with the punishment comes a pardon. And that's the magnificent truth I want you to see today. This passage might look very harsh about the consequences of sin, but it also illustrates the incredible love and grace of God, the love that he has for lost people. And this passage, even though it's ancient, I think is a vivid illustration of what Jesus did for sinners on the cross. When speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus, he uses the illustration of his own death for sinners on the cross. He uses this as an illustration. This particular story is an illustration of what he's achieving on the cross for sinners. So for Israel, this is one of those situations It's going to be another one of our hopeless cases because it really is hopeless, isn't it? When everyone's getting bitten by snakes and they're all dying. But this particular passage it t- it teaches us about the hope for those that are trapped in the group of sin. There's salvation for people who are perishing. There is hope for the hopeless. So let's have a look at it. I want you to open your Bible, if you would, to Numbers chapter 21. Look at verses 4 and 5, first of all, looking at Israel's sin. In verse 5, it says they spoke against God. So what they're doing in verse 5 is they're actually rejecting God. And because they did this, the Lord judged them harshly. Now, don't get the idea that God's a little bit sensitive. You know, he wears his heart in his sleeve and he just can get hurt. His feelings real bad. God's not like that. But there's one thing that Israel knew how to do. And they knew how to do really well. They knew how to gripe and they knew how to complain. Gosh, that sounds like lots of congregations, doesn't it? No, no. Actually, that's all they've done for about 38 years in wandering the wilderness. Listen to the record of their, their, their wretched whining found in the book of Numbers. Maybe it's the number of times that Israel complained. That's why they call it the book of Numbers. Numbers 11, verse 1. The people complained, and it displeased the Lord. Numbers 14, verse 2. And all the Israel, Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in the land of Egypt or in this desert. Numbers 16, verse 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people, they said. <laughs> Numbers 17, verse 12. The Israelites said to Moses, we will die. We are lost. We're all lost. What a hopeless bunch. Now, up till now, the Israelites have been speaking against their leaders. But in this passage, which we read this morning, they're now speaking against God. So instead of talking about other people, they're now, they're now turning their anger to God himself. 
Can you imagine the audacity and the arrogance that it took for puny human beings to be railing against their God who'd been so good to them? He'd saved them by his grace. You know, they, these people were nobodies. They were a bunch of slaves in Egypt. And God saved them, made them into a nation, made them into a people. And now they dare speak against God. So they reject God's person. And they also reject God's promise. In verse 5, they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Now think about this for a moment. God had promised the nation of Israel that he would bring them into the promised land. That's the promise. But they're saying, oh, hang on, you're just abandoning us here to die in the desert. It's not fair. But they had God's word on this, and yet they look God straight in the eye, and they say impudently and arrogantly and blasphemously, we do not believe in you. We don't believe you and your promises. You're a liar. Can you imagine saying that to God Almighty? That has some application for us, by the way. Every time, every time we doubt the word of God, we discredit the worth of God. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? He said that let God be true and every man a liar. God's true. You're liars. Well, that's true, isn't it? Hmm? So just so you know, God holds his word in high esteem. The psalmist puts it this way. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple. I'll praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's what's exalted. The name of God and the word of God. So God expects us, brothers and sisters, as Christians, to be reading the word, to be honoring the word, to be obeying the word, and to make his word the standard for our lives. But Israel, they rejected God, they rejected God's promise, and they rejected God's provision. So to add insult to injury, they said, look, there's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food that you've given to us. God provides them every day with manna. He provides them with water. He provides them with a quail. Remember that too? But they don't appreciate these things they've received from the hand of the God. There are two words in this verse that are interesting. They say that they detest, we detest this miserable food. To detest something means, you know, I'm disgusted by this stuff. You know, I'm disgusted with what you give to me, God. God graciously gave them manna every day. He used it to keep them fed and healthy. And they look at this stuff and they say, oh, that's disgusting. Aren't it shocked? Aren't you? And they say, not only is it disgusting, it's miserable. That means it's worthless. This manna that you're giving us is worthless. It's far from worthless, I think. This, this was what fed them in, 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 the, in the wilderness. It gave them strength. It gave them sustenance. It was their very salvation, really. Without it, they would have starved to death. Yet the one thing that gives them life, they're renouncing. It gets worse, though. Not only that, they reject God's prophet. They speak against God and they speak against Moses. So when a person rejects God, they're also going to reject God's man. His mouthpiece. So when you fall out with God, you're eventually going to fall out with the man of God. That's what we see happening here. So here we have a nation of, of people whom God has provided everything necessary for them to be happy, to be healthy, to be holy. And what should have been the sweet smell of God's goodness turns into a stench in their nostrils. That for which they should have praised him results in them turning 
their backs on him. They despise him for his grace. They hate him for his generosity. They criticize God for his guidance. I would have just said snakes. <laughs> Interestingly, this is actually what the lost world does every day. The world breathes God's air, eats his food, drinks his water, enjoys his world, but they despise God's word, they reject God's authority, they refuse to bow to his will, they shake their puny fists at God. They voice their defiance every day in every way. The lost world proves that it is in fact wicked, depraved, and deserves the judgment God's going to send their way. So you see, this sin from Israel wasn't unique to just Israel, was it? It happens every day in our world. But what makes their sin so bad was that these people knew God. They had a relationship with God. God was present with them. They had his promises. They'd seen him fulfill his promises day by day, time and time again. Yet they turn and reject him out of hand. That's a tragedy, isn't it? And it happened far too often. But reject God like that. There's going to be a price to pay. So let's have a look at Israel's sentence. We find that in, in verse 6. Because of Israel's rebellion, God sends judgment on them in the form of venomous snakes. You know what? These snakes are exactly what those jolly people deserved. Because the snake, as you know, in the Bible, is a symbol of sin. Satan disguised himself as a snake in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? Throughout the Bible, the snake is a symbol of sin, of evil and rebellion against God. So it's fitting that God should send snakes amongst the people. Sin is very much like a snake, I think. Sin holds power over us. It's always there in the depth of our fallen natures. It waits like a taipan to strike at you and fill us with its deadly venom. And if sin is allowed to sink its fangs into our lives, it's then going to coil itself around us and choke the life right out of us. It won't stop until it's destroyed you and everything you love. So these snakes, they were deserved. Not only were they deserved, they were dreadful. Their poison caused intense pain to be inflicted on their victims. Most likely it was a type of viper that was found in the Middle East. And I did some reading on this sort of thing. It's interesting. Research on the, on the vipers that were there, that were really deadly ones, reveals the following symptoms from a viper's bite. There's injection of venom, venom which initiates a fiery pain at the site of the bite. Swelling begins immediately. Discoloration at the site of the bite varies from white to flaming red and purple and dark blue. That's very colourful. <laughs> Victims would experience nausea, vomiting, excruciating stomach pains and cramping. After that, you begin to experience extreme thirst. The liver and the kidneys are damaged from filtering the toxins, resulting in extreme tenderness to the lower abdominal area. Then diarrhoea sets in to make it good. Hemorrhaging occurs in the form of nosebleeds or bleeding from the mouth of the eyes. The viper's venom is a hemotoxin. It destroys the blood cells, causes bleeding where the capillaries are close to the surface. And you also bleed internally. It's getting better, isn't it? Quick death doesn't happen. It's unusual. Generally, the suffering is prolonged for one or two days. So what's the point of all this? The point is that God is trying to teach us that suffering follows sin. Just as surely as night follows day. The devil has tried to sell us this idea that it's hard to be a Christian. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The way of the transgressor, it says in Proverbs, 
is hard. And we see that here, don't we? It's hard. It's also hard to say to a lost sinner, listen, you're getting exactly what you deserve from the hand of God. It's also hard to say to the saints, listen, if you're wandering off into the devil's playground, expect some reaction. In Revelation it says, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. Brothers and sisters, we face that from God, don't we? So these serpents, we're also told, are very deadly. It says that many Israelites die. Well, sin's just like that, isn't it? Sin thrills you for a little while, and then it kills you. The Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. It also says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Well, Paul puts it very simply, the wages of sin is death. Yeah? So the same snake that inflicts death is the same snake that will tell you God's not going to punish you if you sin. He's a liar. But there's still a fiery, fatal, fearful punishment for those who die in their sin. What am I talking about now? I'm talking about a place called hell, actually. That's what's there. This is real. The Bible says that sin is a debt. And when a person has a debt, the debt is either paid or the debtor is punished. That's how debt works. Either your sin is paid for by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross or your sin debt is punished in the fire of hell. Defiant sinners always face judgment by fiery snakes that are going to get you. There's a real place called hell, and for all those who reject Jesus, that's where they're going to spend eternity. Listen to what it says in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 to 9. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the majesty of his power. That's what the Bible says, brothers and sisters. I've got nothing else to do but say this is what it tells you. Right? If we go back to our reading in verse 6, it says that many Israelites died. Now that's putting it mildly. People are dropping like flies because of these snake bites. They're dying all over the camp of Israel. Now keep in mind there were somewhere between 2 and 4 million people in this small area. And poisonous snakes are amongst them, biting them. They're getting sick and they're dying. There's no hospital. And even if there had been a hospital, it wouldn't have been big enough for all the sick people. There are no doctors. And even if there were doctors, there wouldn't be enough for all the patients. There's no anti-venom and no other medicines. And even if there were, there's not enough to go around. So this is a desperate situation, isn't it? People are dying everywhere and there seems to be no cure available. And there's no help in sight. Step back from this for a moment and have a look at this picture again. This is a tragic picture that paints a picture actually of the lost sinner, a lost person left in the lost condition. That's exactly what they're in. They're left to themselves and they're hopeless, they're helpless. There's nothing they can do to change the situation. You can't save yourself from the poison of sin that flows in your veins. But in this passage, and I rejoice in this passage because there's a wonderful thought that presents itself. Here, even though the situation is desperate, with God it is not hopeless. I want you to keep that in mind. Because look what happens in verse 7. There's Israel's sorrow. When you've been bitten by a deadly snake, there are only two things you can do. You can sit down and die, or you can go do something about it. The Israelites, they chose to do something about their situation. They took three steps that every person has to take if he's going to be cured of the snake bite of sin and escape that fiery judgment of hell. First of all, 
There was conviction. Listen to what it says. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. So no matter what else you do, until you get to that point in your life where you're willing to say, I have sinned, until you get to that point, you're never going to be saved. That's why Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. See, that's the drawing of God, this conviction in our heart. I have sinned against God. It needs to be in our hearts. So there was conviction. There's also confession. The people went on to say, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They're saying that to Moses. So true conviction always follows a full confession. In fact, confession not only follows conviction, conviction actually forces confession. If I'm convicted of my sin, I've got to do something. I've got to say it. I've got to speak it out. This is my life. This is what's happened to me. This is the situation I find myself in. And I've got to say it to God. So the sinner needs to get honest about the condition before there can be salvation. So there's conviction, there's confession, and there's also contrition. The people went on to say, pray the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. See, the final step is to recognize that your only hope is God. When the sinner comes to see his lost condition and confesses the need before the Lord, the sinner will be in a place where he'll turn to the Lord for help and find the help he needs. And these three steps, they always work together. In conviction, you acknowledge that you've done wrong to yourself. In confession, you admit you've done wrong to others. And in contrition, you expect you've done, you confess that you've done and accept that you've done wrong before God. Then and only then, is the Lord ready to accomplish his work to save you? Every single one of these steps that I mentioned are actually the work of God's grace in the heart of a sinner. The sinner cannot convict themselves. A sinner cannot draw themselves. A sinner cannot even see his own need unless God reveals it to you. It's God who makes the sinner aware. It's God who convinces the sinner. It's God who draws the sinner. It's God who gives you the faith. It's from God, the beginning to the end, isn't it? Well, that's all the bad stuff. Let's get to the good bits. Salvation here. The cure of this serpent problem is not a pill. It's not a potion. The solution is a brass serpent raised up on a pole. Now, there's some very precious truths I want to see here because this is important. First of all, this, this, this bronze brass serpent, serpent is a picture of guilt. The serpent symbolizes sin. And bronze in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. So, and, and being lifted up on, the, on a pole is a picture of a curse because the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Now, there's something really strange here that I want you to understand. Stay with me. I see some of you nodding off. Wake up. Give them a nudge. Quick. I know it's a bit steamy and hot now. Maybe it's all the hot air that I'm giving out. I don't know, something. But you see something strange here. The cure for the snake problem took the form of what caused the problem to begin with. That's interesting. It's a snake that bit them. Yet it's looking at a snake that heals them. What's going on there? You see something strange there? We need to move to the New Testament now. When Jesus went to the cross, he died to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus had no sin of his own. He was innocent of all sin. Yet the Bible says he took our sins on himself when he died upon the cross. The innocent dying for the guilty. Listen to what the Bible says. 
For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The snake was a picture of the problem. Jesus also becomes for us the problem, the sin problem. Jesus took upon himself sin. He became sin for us. He never sinned, but became sin for us. That's what's happening there with the picture of the snake transferred to the picture of Jesus. And there's also the wonderful provision of God here. Who came up with this incredibly strange plan in the first place? Well, verse 8 says, The Lord says to Moses, Who planned to save the people from from the snake bites via looking at the snake? God did. It was God's plan, wasn't it? And that's exactly the same way that people are saved today. People are saved here in the Old Testament the same way that they're saved in the New Testament. They look to a substitute. Now, I know there's some theology that's happening here, but that's, I've just got to teach it to you. There's a substitute provided for by God that saves them. So looking to Jesus, who's also our substitute, saves us. The only difference in numbers here is that we have, in the Old Testament, they're looking to a snake. In the New Testament, we look to Jesus. You understand? You with me there? Okay. There's also the incredible power of grace here, what I want you to see as well. Looking to the snake was infallible. Everyone who looked, every single one, lived. They didn't just feel better, they got well. The Old Testament Bible says look and live. The New Testament Bible says believe and be saved. It's the same thing. Looking to the eyes, what faith is to the heart. If you look to the snake, you are guaranteed to live. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are guaranteed to be saved. Because it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes? My Bible, your Bible? Okay, good. So it was infallible, but it's also individual. Every person has to look for themselves. Nobody can look for you. If you're bitten and want to get healed, you have to look to that snake for yourself. Anyone could be healed, but not everybody was healed because not everybody looked. Interestingly also, that once you looked to the snake, it was instantaneous healing. The people who looked at that snake didn't have to wait or pray or pay for salvation. The moment they looked was the moment that they lived again. Salvation is not a process. It's a, critis- it's a critical moment. It's a moment of crisis when all this happens. When you come to see who you are and you come to see who Jesus is. When you're brought face to face with him. So it's individual, it's instantaneous and it's also invaluable. The healing God provides via this snake was free, was readily available, it was sufficient and would work for anyone. That's the same with faith in Jesus, isn't it? You can be saved if you want to be. So there's some lessons we need to learn here from this passage. First of all, we need to look to Jesus if we want to be saved. Think about it. The only condition placed on these people here in Numbers was they had to look. The Israelites could have tried all kinds of homemade remedies. They could have bathed their wounds in in, in tears of, of remorse. They could have put on the ointment of religion. They could have bandaged themselves with good works. And the snake bite still would have killed them. Hear me well. The people who died didn't die because they'd been bitten. They died because they didn't look. That's the thing. So the moment you 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 get that in your mind and understand that, you go, ah, that makes sense to me, this whole gospel stuff now. Imagine for a moment. Put on your imaginations for a minute that you're in the scene here, okay? You're back in Numbers 21. This is happening to you. And all around you, the people are dying. 
And there's someone who's wonderfully cured by all of this thing. He's going from tent to tent. And he goes from, from one tent to the next tent. He opens it up and, he's, and, he's, and he says to one man, Oh, one man says to him, look, oh, I'm too sick. Says the guy's been cured. He's, the guy, he's talking to the little guy lying there on the floor. He says, I'm too sick, says this man. I'm too sick. I'm too far gone. Not even a raised snake could heal me. So he goes to the next tent. He says, sir, if you just look, you'll be saved. And the man says, well, I don't feel like this snake bite is all that bad. Matter of fact, I haven't been bitten as bad as some other people have been bitten. I've been bitten only once. I know some people at church have been bitten twice. Doesn't look to the snake. So the man goes to the third tent. He says, sir, if you just take a look, you'll be saved. And the man says, well, when I get well, I'll look. I'm not just going to look till I get that healing feeling first of all. But I tell you, I've got to get my life straightened out. I'll get over the snake bite and then I'll go and look. That doesn't work either. So he goes to the fourth tent. The man, the, man says, the man says, oh, I don't believe in that brass snake theory. I don't buy into that stuff. I don't see any relationship or connection between a snake raised up on a pole and the snake that's biting me. I'm not interested. Well, heard that story too, haven't you? He goes to another tent and he says, Sir, you're so sick. If you just look at this snake, you'll live. And the man says, You know, I've really gotten kind of attached to this snake. At least it's attached to me. I kind of hate to give it up. I kind of, I kind of enjoy it. And if I look to that snake, I have to give up this snake. I believe I'll just hold it to what I've got. It's got me after all. Sounds really ridiculous. Well, exactly the same story that I hear from people. When I talk to them about Jesus, they give me the same kinds of excuses. It's all weird and wacky. You go like, for goodness sakes, all you've got to do is believe. How hard is this? And they refuse. <sighs> People are going to die in their sins and go to hell because they refuse to look to Jesus for salvation. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this. He says, I told you you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Jesus says the same thing. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The scripture makes it really clear, doesn't it? John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Do you see how simple this whole jolly thing is? Look to the snake and live. Look to Jesus and live. It's as simple as that. There's the Old Testament picture, which we see revealed further in the New Testament. We also need to lift up Jesus. To prove my point that I told you earlier on, that there's a relationship between the Old and the New Testament, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. If Jesus was lifted up on the cross to pay for our sins... And if he's the only hope we have for salvation, don't you agree we ought to be lifting up Jesus for other people to see as well? That's all we've got to do. Lift up Jesus so someone can look at him. That's all we've got to do. How simple is this? Just look and live. Just believe and live. Just believe and be forgiven. You have eternal life. It's so jolly simple. Look, I'm going to wind this thing up. Where does this sermon find you today? Where are you at in your journey? Have you been bitten by the snake of sin? Can you feel its poison working through your system? Are you aware of the pain and the problems that sin caused you? Are you conscious of the fact that you're going to die and when you do, you're going to hell? Does that describe you? Because if it does, 
you don't have to die without Jesus. You don't have to live one more minute as a slave to sin and to sin's power. And you don't have to go to hell. I'm here to invite everyone today. Look and live. Look to Jesus and be free. It's as simple as that. One look saved Israel. One look can save you too. But I know I'm preaching here at church. Most of them converted. If you're saved, <clears throat> are you lifting up Jesus to those who are around about you? As it says in the book of Jude, are we pulling them out of the fire? Because that's precisely what we're doing when we preach the gospel, when we introduce someone to Jesus. We're pulling them out of the fire of hell itself. Jesus has given us a great commission. Or is it the great omission? I hope it's the great commission of this church too. Sometimes we need to come before God and ask for his forgiveness that we're not telling lost people about Jesus. Maybe we just need to come and pray for lost souls. We have our prayer time here. Some of you pray for lost souls. And in our prayer time before the service, we have opportunity as well. I'd love to see more of you out there. We're going to have an even bigger room quite soon. There's plenty of room for everybody to get out there and pray so we can pray for the lost. If you are a saved person, how long has it been since you bowed at the feet of the Lord and loved him and thanked him for all he's done for you? How long has it been since you lifted up your voice to testify about his saving grace before others? How long has it been since you've been overcome by his power, by his love, by his grace, and by his glory? He's revealed himself to us. We are a unique people. We were once slaves to sin. We've now been set free. We are the people of God. And our task is now to tell other people about it. Tell them your story. You've each got a story to tell, and it's compelling. Let's make sure we're sharing that with others. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for an incredible story that looks really strange at the outset. But then when we look at it a little bit more closely, we discover it's so relevant to each one of us. Thank you that we were once hopeless cases, but we now have great hope. Enable us, Father, to praise you, to worship you, and to be effective in the work of outreach. Fill us afresh with your spirit that we might be just driven by you, Lord, into the world, into the community, and share the message that you've given to each one of us. May we share our story with others, and may they recognize that they just need to look to Jesus so that they too might be saved. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the last hymn this morning is hymn number 298, Only Trust Him. We're going to stand together as we sing.
Father, we give you thanks and praise that we have been able to trust in our Lord Jesus. And ask, Father, now for your blessing upon the brothers and sisters that might go out into the world in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.